This episode of the Economic Arise podcast was made possible with the help of Studio. We all love listening to podcasts, right? Well, as podcast fans, I'm sure you guys will understand how important your earphones are to the whole listening experience and how difficult it can be to find the right pair. Some might be too bulky, sometimes the cables are too long and always get tangled up, while some of the wireless options have a lousy battery life and barely last throughout the day. Thankfully, the folks over at Studio have come up with a wonderful solution. If you're not familiar, Studio is a Swedish audio accessories brand that aims to deliver excellence in design and sound quality, which is evident in their latest product, the Studio 12. These are a pair of fully wireless earphones that both sound good and look great, and boy, there's a pack a punch in the sustainability department. We're talking 35 full hours of battery life on these things, with 7 hours per charge and an extra 4 chargers in the carrying case. We're talking brand new graphene drivers that offer top-notch audio quality and Bluetooth 5.0 with a wireless range of up to 15 meters. And you know what? If you have never tried fully wireless earphones before, you might be a little hesitant. I get that, I was pretty much the same way. I mean, who wants to keep losing expensive earphones, right? But having tried the toll for about a week, I can safely say that my doubts were overstated. The pieces may be small, but they are designed to fit snugly in your ear, such that it never feels like it's going to pop out that easily. And yes, while having wireless earphones takes some getting used to, the convenience and ease of use of these things more than make up for it. I mean, straight out of the box, all you gotta do is pair it once with your phone, and each time you want to use it, just take it out of the charging case and it connects automatically. Boom! Easy! Alright, so if you're interested in getting yourself a pair, you can head over to Studio's website at studio.com to check them out. That's Studio S-U-D-I-O. Studio offers free shipping on every purchase, and currently they have a summer promotion where they will throw in a free Studio summer tote bag with each earphone purchase from the 1st of May to the 31st of July. Oh, and do you know what's the best part? Promo codes! Yes, the Economical Rice Podcast has its own promo code. Enter Economical Rice Podcast at checkout for 15% off. That's Economical Rice Podcast, no spaces for 15% off. Holy cow, you have no idea how long I've been waiting to say that. The Economical Rice Podcast will now return to its regular scheduled programming. Details about the Studio 12 will be linked in the description. Check it out. On the 28th of January 1819, Sir Stamford Raffles arrived on St. John's Island and within two days secured a preliminary agreement to establish a factory here in Singapore. To Raffles, this was just part of his mission to find a new central trading post in the Malay archipelago. And over the grander course of history, you could call this event a mere blip or just a moment in time. Singapore's history, after all, dates back over 700 years to the early 1300s. So how important could one year be? <laughs> However, the significance of his arrival is celebrated as an integral component in pushing the small island towards its present destiny. As the cliche goes, from small kampung village to the bustling island nation metropolis of today. So much is this the case that we learn about him in our textbooks. We name MRT stations after him. And in 2019, 200 years after the arrival of Sir Stanford Raffles, Singapore celebrates the bicentennial. 
a commemoration of the history, culture, and ideas that has brought us to where we are today. And perhaps in a gesture befitting Singapore's incredible growth in wealth and prosperity since the days of 1819, our president Halima Yaakob recently announced on June 5th that MAS will be launching a commemorative $20 note. The front features Mr. Yusuf Ishak, Singapore's first president, while the back showcases a cast of eight pioneering individuals who were pivotal in the nation-building process. These include the likes of Munshi Abdullah, an influential teacher and widely recognized as the father of modern Malay literature, or Tan Ka Ki, community leader and philanthropist who set up schools and donated generously towards education, among others. The note then is more than just a piece of paper or some ordinary currency. It's a celebration, a tribute. Because the bicentennial was never just about Sir Stanford Raffles alone, but like the eight pioneering figures on the back, also about the numerous individuals and their contributions towards Singapore as a whole. Like P. Govindasamy Pillai, who donated and contributed significantly towards temple building and our religious diversity, or Teresa Su Chi, who came to Singapore in 1963 and founded the Home for the Aged Sick, one of the first elderly care homes in Singapore. The note and the whole bicentennial itself is about their stories, their lives, their histories. It is a symbol of our country's values of openness, multiculturalism, and self-determination, and more importantly, it is a reflection, something that we desperately need in these uncertain times, on how the actions and sacrifices of our brave pioneers intertwines and contributes to Singapore as we know today. This is a grand gesture. Dude. Recording what? Someone's selling these notes for a thousand dollars. What? Yeah, it's on Carousel. See? Bicentennial commemorative $20 note, 988 bucks. No way. Let me see. What? Come on. Hello, 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 and you're tuning in to an episode of the Economical Rice Podcast. You're still hoping to get your hands on Singapore's new $20 bicentennial commemorative notes. Your options are fast shrinking, I'm afraid, just a day after those notes were released. Five of the nine major retail banks have run out of their allocated supplies. And uh, they include banks like uh, DBS and UOB. Eugenia Lim, she tells us more. Snaking queues outside banks to endless listings. The $20 bicentennial commemorative notes have now made their way online, with sellers hoping to cash in. The Monetary Authority of Singapore says the law does not prohibit anyone from selling the notes online. However, it urges Singaporeans to collect it as keepsakes, as they are a one-off issue. And if you're looking to buy it, one expert says expect at least a 20% markup of the face value. As Belmont Lay writes in an article from Mothership, Singapore has officially hit peak capitalism. And 
it's definitely a tempting thought. While the nation-building process has produced much wealth and prosperity through its embrace of capitalism, it has also cultivated some peculiar local traits along the way. Think of our gyasu tendencies, our perennial chase for material gain, or even the five C's for example. But to the extent that we are flipping money for profit, that has to be too far, right? I mean, money is money and a $20 note should not be valued for anything more or less than $20. It's right there in the note itself, plain and visible for everyone and anyone to see. But with that being said, can we just brush this off as crazy delusional opportunists taking advantage of crazy delusional victims? I'm not so sure. Or at the very least, there's probably a whole lot more to the story that's worth getting into. So the question then begs, can you sell a $20 note for $1,000? How do you even begin to sell a $20 note for $1,000? And who's buying these $1,000, $20 notes anyway? Don't they know it's worth just $20? We'll find out after a quick break. So, Contrary to what you might believe, the practice of buying money isn't as crazy as you might think. And here at the Arcade, which coincidentally sits on top of Raffles Place MRT, we have one of the busiest places where you can actually buy money. As you climb up the escalators, you are greeted with throngs of customers and a street corridor lined up with probably the densest collection of money changers here in Singapore. I actually have a holiday coming up and need to change some money, so yeah, let's go. Alright, so I know I'm cheating a bit here since with money changers you're actually buying other countries' currencies, but the whole point of this is to ease you into the idea of just buying currency itself and how complicated it can be. I mean, think about it, right? You have billions or even trillions of dollars being traded around the globe each day, and yet when you get to the actual valuation itself, there isn't much of an exact science. Like, you could ask the smartest currency trader on Wall Street, and he can build you all these fancy models and algorithms, but all he's really doing is making a prediction, which is dependent on the innumerable factors that actually swing the price of currencies. For instance, there's economic indicators like current account deficits, inflation rate differentials, or the level of public debt, and you could even consider outside factors such as political stability, trade policy, or even natural disasters. And I know what you're thinking, why would this matter if we're just buying the same currency? Well, directly it doesn't, at least if you're looking to purchase Sing dollars with Sing dollars. But indirectly, however, if you consider what the value of your currency actually is, it could make a whole world of difference, and particularly so due to the nature of Singapore's economy. As you know, we are a tiny island nation with little natural resources to speak of, so we import a bunch of stuff from overseas, and any fluctuations in foreign exchange rates could have ripple effects throughout the country. 
For example, say we import the bulk of our meat from Australia and when the Australian economy is doing well, AUD becomes more expensive and we have to pay more for the same amount of produce that we typically import. And when we go to a supermarket, we see that the price of meat has increased and consequently, the relative value of our Singapore dollars has decreased in terms of how much we can purchase versus how much we used to be able to purchase. Oh, but before we continue, I think I just found a vendor with the best rates. Be right back. Uh, can I change for a Thai butt? Sorry? Uh, 250. I don't have one for, I only have $10. Now, on the grand scheme of things, price fluctuations or foreign exchange rates shouldn't really impact individuals like you or me that much. Like for instance, the difference between the rate at which I bought my Thai baht versus the actual exchange rate on the day cost me about an additional 39 cents. Just a tiny markup of roughly 0.18%. So unless you're trading at a significantly larger scale or consuming significant amounts of meat, I wouldn't be too fussed about it. Nonetheless, this whole discussion about currency trading and the value of money provides a useful framework for how we could answer the main question of this episode. Just like how numerous factors could impact the price of other currencies, what other factors might lead someone to value a $20 note for $1,000? At this point, I have a bunch of theories and ideas that I would like to test out, and this is where I introduce my test subjects and friends from work, Macy and Leanne. Hi, I'm Macy. Hi, I'm Leanne. The goal of today's episode then is to get them to say yes to this next question. Alright, so hi Macy and Leanne. Thanks for taking the time to come on the podcast. Uh, so I have here a crisp $10 note. Would you buy this for $500? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, you might notice that I'm not using the commemorative $20 note and I'm not asking for $988. But 988 is roughly 50 times 20 and 500 is 50 times 10, so I guess it kind of works. I'm working on a really tight budget here. Hope you understand. Anyway, here comes the first theory. Alright, so suppose that I spend time and effort to acquire this $10 note, right? Would you buy it for $500 then? No! <laughs> okay, but are you more or less likely to buy it now than before? Maybe? Mm, possibly? So on its face, this seems like a really stupid question, right? But Remember that valuing currency is tricky, so having any indication at all of the potency of each factor to influence the sale really, really helps. If you didn't catch it, the factor I was testing was the amount of work that went into acquiring the $10 note. It might seem a little odd to think of currencies this way, but it might be easier to visualize it if you looked at each note as a separate commodity which requires resources and labor to produce just like a brand new car or a tennis racket. Also, remember how the currency I bought earlier was sold at a markup? Well, that's precisely to cover the salaries of the employees or the capital needed for rent or equipment. So it's really not that far-fetched of an idea. 
In fact, if we go back to the CNN video I played earlier, we get this remark from Lawrence Lau, a trader in specialty currencies, just like the bicentennial $20 note. But I'm generally uh, predicting that probably we'll see a realizable appreciation of about 20-30%, at least for the normal notes. I think that will be uh, just a fair price for the 2-3 to three hours they queue in the bank. And if you actually went to Carousel and looked for the commemorative note yourself, you would notice that Mr. Lau is about right. While the controversy is centered on the infamous $988 note, most of the listings are nowhere near that figure, with the bulk hovering at around the $25 to $30 range, a markup between 25 to 50%. What this tells us is that for waking up early and queuing up for the notes, most Singaporeans value that effort at $5 to $10 a note, which honestly doesn't seem that much, but if you compare that markup against what a full-time money changer charged me at just 0.18%, then it starts to make a little more sense. More importantly, what this also means is that we have more work to do. If most Singaporeans believe that their effort is worth a markup of about $5 to $10, why is there someone charging significantly higher than that? Clearly, there must be something else going on with the price, right? Okay, okay, so, but get this right. Assume now that on top of the time and effort that I put in to get this note, it is also like a really special note, okay? Something that gets people excited and sentimental, you know? Like, maybe it's the 10-year anniversary of... Uh, what happened in 2009? The opening of the circle, right? Wow. <laughs> right? Right, so, and they only release a limited amount, like 100,000 issues or something. Would you buy it at $500 then? $500? <laughs> That's a lot of money. <laughs> um, maybe they have a resale value. <laughs> not really. Okay, not, not too surprising, but... Um, yeah, so then again, same question as before. Are you more or less likely now to buy it at $500 than before? Yeah, but maybe not $500. <laughs> yeah, not, not $500. Okay, okay, but, but say like... Um, but, but say how, how much more, right? Like if you were to put a value on this special limited edition $10, road, $10 note that remember I worked my ass off queuing in line to get how much would you be willing to pay? Assuming, of course, that you were someone who gets sentimental and excited over the circle line. <laughs> Maybe $30, but that's, that's the cap. Yeah, yeah, about there. Okay, okay, okay. Alright, so with this next factor, we are kind of going back to basics by looking at one of the fundamental principles of economics, supply and demand. As I talked about in the introduction and through the news clip, the commemorative note is special and holds some sentimental value to Singaporeans, like this guy, for instance. Previously, we also collected the uh, SG50 notes, uh, so uh, who knows when will the next milestone be, uh, so just collect whatever that we can get. And even if we discount all the scalpers out there just looking to make a quick buck, all this interest in the new note signals strong demand. Couple that with its limited release of 2 million pieces from the Monetary Authority of Singapore, and what we wind up with is news article after news article detailing how several banks had finished their allocated supplies within the first day of release. Of course, as anyone can tell you, if you have strong demand and limited supplies, 
you should raise the price. It's economics 101. But what is interesting in this situation is that since these notes are special and released by the government, they were sold at face value, exchanging $20 for $20 notes. After all, you can't have the MAS trying to profit off of these special releases, right? I mean, Singaporeans will have a field day if that ever happened. And so the government releases these notes at an undervalued price, and the market being the market, or carousel in this instance, corrects the price by adjusting it upwards. Hence, all these listings of $25 to $30. In fact, if you look through Carousel, you can still find listings for some of the previous iterations of special currencies. There's the special $50 and $10 notes issued for the SG50 celebrations back in 2015. There's the special $25 note issued in 1996 to celebrate 25 years of the MES and a whole lot more. Seemingly, amidst the wealth that we have accrued over the past 200 years and all the quirks and behaviors that we have developed along the way, buying and selling notes is just another drop in the bucket. Right, but moving on. So far, we found that in terms of selling a $20 note for $988, time and effort matters, and so does supply and demand of the note as it pertains to being a special limited edition release. However, that still does not quite take us to that magic figure of $988. In fact, if we look at the bulk of the listings going for $25 to $30, or even some in the $40 to $50 range, we are still way off. So if this selling price is an outlier, that must mean that there's some crazy, unique, unaccounted for X factor, right? Like, maybe the note was the first one printed, or maybe it was signed by our president or something? And so, after going through the news articles and the carousel listings again, I stumbled upon this little bit. If the note carries a significant uh, nice number, like a 200, or if they like 888 or something like that, a prosperity number, this will carry a, a premium. But I'm generous, uh, Wait, hold up, hold up. Carries a, a 20% markup of the face value. If the notes carries a significant uh, nice number, like a 200, or if they like 888 or something like that, <laughs> a prosperity number, okay. this will carry a, a premium. But I'm okay, no way, no way, right? Like, come on, right? Alright, carousel, commemorative notes. Commemorative notes, $20. Price high to low. And. <laughs> unique series number 888. 20 running number 9 series. 20 almost sequential super. <laughs> Oh my god, what? Yeah, so as it turns out, the X factor might have just been the serial numbers all along. A special case of demand and supply where you have super rare notes with running numbers or lucky numbers and people who actually believe in the stuff. And when you look at articles talking about the $988 commemorative note, there is a picture of the listing with a caption that reads, and I'm quoting here, my number is nice, 59888. 
means 我就发发发. For any of you who don't understand Chinese, 5988 basically sounds like I am rich, rich, rich in Mandarin. And if you looked at other higher price listings on Carousel, you would see the same thing. There's one guy selling 9 pieces of running numbers in a set for $888. There's another guy selling 2 pieces in a set with the same serial numbers for $488. And my personal favorite, there is actually someone on the internet selling 9 pieces of our $10 notes, just typical red $10 notes, for $2,000. $200 because the set has a running series of 111111222222 and so on all the way to 999999. At this point, I'm beginning to wonder if Belmont Lay's assessment of peak capitalism is right or if it's just another example of quirky Singaporean behavior. I mean, this is a country that still has feng shui practitioners and professional astrology readers, so people who believe in auspicious numbers to the point where they will pay large sums of money for it doesn't seem all that ridiculous. In fact, there is actually a term for this called numerology, or the belief in the divine or mystical relationship between a number and one or more coinciding events. The old aunties and uncles who read fortunes and give you life advice based on numbers probably fall into this category, and there are even some full-fledged consultants out there who use numerology as a part of their business, with one example being the Yunseng Feng Shui Consultancy, which has an app by the way, or the Wei Feng Shui Academy. Also, I couldn't help but try to find any videos of these practitioners online, and this just happened to come up. How about the other end? We give a chance. Okay, the gentleman, yes, please. Maybe we'll do you next. You've been jumping up and down for a while. <laughs> the video is titled IFSA Numerology Presentation Singapore 2010, with IFSA being the International Feng Shui Association. And what appears to be happening is that a speaker with a projector is calling out members of the audience and giving live numerology readings. Thanks, Okay, so number seven, as your external personality, your out number, how people like to see you, how you like to be seen out there in the world. And number seven is all about spirituality. Do you practice any spiritual discipline? Where are you? No? You don't practice any spiritual discipline? A little bit? I recommend you doing a little bit more. Go for meditation. Aside from this, I also got a bunch of video testimonials from this numerology company called Winner Resources, such as this one. Hi, I'm Sharon from Real Estate Industry. And the reason for me to attend this course is to um, value added uh, my own skill set and at the same time, I would like to know myself better and so that I can help other people. Or this one. Hi, I'm Amelia from uh, the property uh, industry. Uh, I just attended this uh, numerology course uh, from the Winners Resources uh, by Marco. Yes, and then uh, I really enjoyed this course very much, uh, benefit a lot from it. Uh, it's very insightful in terms of uh, helping you to understand yourself better uh, as a self-discovery technique and also to... Um... I think I'm beginning to see a pattern here. 
Hi everyone, my name is Asen and I'm from the real estate industry. Um, I'm always very curious about how numerology will affect me and my life and for me, I'm very glad to attend Marco's uh, course. The numerology course allows me to understand more about myself and how it affects my life. All right, maybe Marco from Winner Resources just filmed all of these testimonials after presenting to a real estate company or something, but incidentally, there have actually been studies done on this exact phenomenon in this exact industry. In a 2016 paper titled Superstition, Conspicuous Spending, and Housing Markets, a group of NUS professors looked at more than 54,000 private property transactions and found that Chinese buyers pay on average 2.4% more for lucky addresses or units with the number 8 and 1.2% less for unlucky addresses, generally those with the number 4, which sounds like the character for deaf in Chinese. But what is interesting about the study was that it also theorized that perhaps one reason why certain Singaporeans pay more for lucky numbers is so that they could show off their ability to afford it. So in this theory, it's not just superstition alone that's driving up the price. And so to tie it back to our case with the commemorative notes, it could be possible that other than just superstition alone, buyers could use this as a way to signal their wealth. I mean, it's kind of difficult to imagine why someone would use a special $20 note with some special numbers instead of just buying a fancy TV or something, but who knows? Maybe the kind of people who believe in this stuff would be equally impressed with seeing a framed $20 note bearing the serial numbers 59888. Actually, come to think of it, right? If someone told me they spent $1,000 on a fancy note and were planning to just put it up on a wall to flex their wealth, I probably consider that more impressive than just some 40-inch flat-screen TV, right? I mean, who does that kind of stuff? But I digress. Anyway, to summarize this episode, we took a quirky instance of peak capitalism, where some guy was trying to sell the commemorative $20 note for $988 and looked at several plausible factors as to how or why the seller would actually do so. There's factors such as the amount of time and effort that went into acquiring the note, then there's also things like the demand and supply of these special limited edition issues, and finally, we took a look at our superstitious belief with auspicious numbers, numerology, and the case for using the notes to show off your wealth. Alright, seems pretty comprehensive, right? Another neat little episode about our unique Singaporean economy with plenty of takeaways to chew on. And so, with the case pretty much figured out, we have just one thing left to do. Okay, okay, so... Let's try, right? Um, assuming now that on top of the notes being special limited edition releases and that I queued up for hours to get them, this particular note also has a special serial number. Like it's 888888 or something, right? And you're the kind of person who is like superstitious about like auspicious numbers. Like you have like feng shui masters decorating your home and, and you go to like a fortune teller or something. Would you be willing to buy this note for 500 yeah, possibly. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Okay, but what if you're not? Nah. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, we sort of did it, I guess. But with that brings the end to today's episode. 
I would like to thank my good friends Macy and Leanne for coming on, to Devin for helping out with his cameo in the introduction, and of course to you, dear listeners, for making it till the end. Hope you had as much fun with this um, semi-serious episode as I did making it. As for anyone who still feels strongly against people selling the commemorative notes online at a jacked up price, feel free to drop me an email or leave a comment somewhere. All I gotta say on the matter is that people buy and sell things for all sorts of different reasons and motivations, so be a bit more understanding and don't be too serious. Life is just too short for that. But I think it's very similar to like buying and giving away gold. Like some people buy gold and give it to their like 10 year employees or something like that. So. And then they normally have like the company stamp or something on it. So it's like you can, there's a resale value to it. So, you know, it's a, uh, I don't think it should be legal. Like if people want to spend money that way, then I think you should let people spend money however they want. It's their money. All right. As usual, all the research materials and music used for the episode will be up on the website show notes and links to the episode sponsor studio will be available there as well. This has been your host Danny with the Economical Rice Podcast, where over here, we pose leading questions to sell our guests hypothetically overpriced notes. Thanks for listening.